of year. Uh, today's scripture reading is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 826 of the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, or if you know someone who needs one, uh, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Good morning. This is my uh, first Palm Sunday in St. Louis. Didn't, didn't start all that great with a bunch of snow this morning, but, but you're turning it around for me, so this is good. My name is Sergey. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Well, today marks the beginning of Holy Week, the most important week in human history. I'm not exaggerating. This is not a rhetorical device. It really is the most important week in human history. I encourage you to use the devotional we've provided to follow Jesus during that week and see what happened, what was said, what was done on each of those days, all leading to the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. We are excited to invite our neighbors and friends and relatives to come and worship with us today and then Friday and also on Easter Sunday. This is a great chance for us believers to to talk to others about the gospel and share the hope that we have. So this morning we're looking at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem on the day that we now call Palm Sunday. If you look in your bulletin, the title of the sermon is The King Comes to the City. It is also our outline. Every once in a while, it just comes together where the title is the outline. I'm going to emphasize each of those three words there. First, the king, who Jesus is. Then the fact that he comes to us. And then thirdly, that he comes to the city and what the response should be. So let's first look at the king himself. I'd like us to imagine what it must have been like for 
to be in Jerusalem on that day during that week. Now this was a huge week. Tens of thousands of people would flock to the city. They would come from very far away, some of them, to worship at the temple and to celebrate the Passover, to remember what God had done for His people when He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. So all these people are coming. You can hear all the different languages are being spoken. And there's the the religious excitement of a holiday. People are remembering the story. They're remembering the blood of the lamb being put on the doorposts and the Egyptian army drowned in the sea. All those stories come to life. And they're talking to each other. They're talking to their children. They're reenacting it by coming to Jerusalem and sacrificing at the temple. There's a lot of excitement. And of course, people are thinking about God's power. They're thinking about God's great concern for His people and looking at their own fate and they're realizing that Jerusalem and Israel is under Rome, that they are slaves again, that there's another power that now is controlling them very much like Egypt did in the days before the Exodus. And so it feels as if God, maybe, maybe God is about to do something like that again. And so they're anticipating. There's an excitement of the crowd where people are gathering, they're walking together towards the temple and they're singing songs. And and there's a sense that maybe God will save us again. Maybe God would send a redeemer, a deliverer, a leader like Moses. Maybe even somebody greater than Moses to save us again. To give us a new life. To return the land to His people. To return independence and freedom to His people. And so people are wondering, maybe this time, maybe this week, maybe today, something great is going to happen. And of course, they're remembering the old prophecies. They're reciting the prophecies, the prophecies about the long-promised King, the Messiah, who would come to liberate His people and establish God's justice forever. Not just for a time, as Moses did, but forever. So this is the setting in which Jesus rides into the city. And there's no question that by entering the city, when Jesus did and in the way that Jesus did it, He declared Himself to be that Messiah. People saw Him as the Messiah. They spread their coats in the road as a sign of their submission to His royal Authority. It was like rolling out the red carpet. They cut tree branches and spread them on the road. Waving and spreading branches was highly symbolic. Palm branches became sort of a, a sign, a symbol of, of national identity, of national independence, of a rebellion even. We can think back to the days of Judas Maccabee, who was nicknamed the Hammer. It's one of my favorite characters in history. If you get a nickname like The Hammer, you know, it's not because you were super nice or smart or great tactician. It's because you were a rebel. You could hurt people, right? You could, you could rise against a power that was much greater than you, and he did. In fact, he led the rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes, It's one of the ruthless dictators who was over Israel at that time. This was about 200 years or so before Palm Sunday. 
And so when people would wave palm branches, they were going back to that time when they greeted Judas Maccabee when he rode into the city and he had liberated Israel. And so people are waving palm branches very much like Americans wave American flags on the 4th of July. It's a symbol of independence and national identity and national pride. They're singing Hosanna. Hosanna literally means, oh, save. They're asking almost without doubt for a political and military emancipation of Israel. They're calling Jesus the son of David. Again, this is not only because Jesus came from David's clan. It's because the Messiah was supposed to come from David's clan. So they're putting all those things together and they're responding in the way that would indicate to us that they see in Jesus the Messiah, the promised king. This is how people saw Jesus. And notice that Jesus does not stop it. Jesus welcomes it. You see, people's understanding of Jesus as the Messiah was not incorrect. It was just incomplete. But certainly Jesus came in power. And so let's correct it a little bit. Let's make sure that that we have a more complete understanding, that we don't just fall in line with the Israelites of that time, but we embrace what they believe and also fill it with meaning as Jesus did in his own entrance into the city. So let's see what kind of king Jesus present himself to be. So let me point out two traits of Jesus' kingship. First, there's his majesty. And we see that very clearly in this story. He came with power and authority that was recognized by the people. While people struggled to find the right title for Jesus, they talked about the son of David and king who comes in the name of the Lord and They sang hosannas, and somebody said, it's a prophet from Nazareth. Jesus himself, in verse 3, referred to himself as the Lord. The Lord. That was his self-designation. And he acted as the Lord. He showed his sovereignty over time and space by entering Jerusalem in fulfillment of very specific prophecies. Everything came together just in the right way to create this picture of the Messiah coming to the city. He showed his authority over creation by taking the donkey and the colt from one of the residents. He had authority to do that. He was the Lord. He showed his control over the hearts of the pilgrims by stirring up the crowds. He came as the Lord would come. But secondly, and that's largely recognized by the crowds, but secondly, there is his meekness. And that's where the surprises start. It's important that Jesus rode on a donkey and not on a war horse. If he came as a conquering king, if he came as one who was going to establish a military political kingdom, he shouldn't have come humbly, meekly on a donkey. He came as a king who brings peace and not further conflict. His kingdom was not going to be established by violence. He came in humility. So we have the majesty of the Messiah, and we also have the meekness of the Messiah. If you know Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ and you've walked with Him, that's not a surprising combination for you. If you're familiar with Him, you know that He is both God and man, right? That He's both majestic 
and meek, that he is both powerful and yet he is humble, that God became human in Jesus, retaining all his divine attributes and yet also taking on all the human limitations. God did not stop being God, and yet he became fully human in the person of Jesus. In Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, this combination, or maybe even a seeming contradiction, a paradoxical combination of strength and power, comes in this comparison. Jesus is described as the lion and the lamb. He's both the lion and the lamb. He is the conqueror and he is the sacrifice in Revelation 5. Now, if you are new to Jesus, or if you are discovering what the Bible actually teaches about Jesus, this combination of majesty and meekness is absolutely crucial for you to understand. You see, Jesus is not like other kings. He doesn't fit our description of an ideal leader. And by the way, we're learning that our description of an ideal leader is rather strange if we follow the voting patterns in these primaries. Jesus comes and and breaks those categories. He doesn't come and submit to our perception of what a great leader should be. In fact, he combines paradoxical traits that we wouldn't put together ourselves. And yet by doing that, he becomes a much greater leader, a much better king for us. So if we see Jesus as a king who combines both glory and humility, both power and tenderness, both divinity and humanity, we might just find that this combination makes him the ideal ruler we'd like to have rule over us. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century New England pastor and theologian, preached a remarkable sermon titled The Excellency of Christ. The Excellency of Christ. In it, he showed how seemingly contradictory traits, or at least traits in tension, are combined perfectly in Christ. And how those things, like weakness and strength together, make him the perfect Savior. I'm going to give you a quote from Edwards to see why it matters so much to us to uphold both the majesty and the meekness of Jesus our King. Edward says, If you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God will never have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that He is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts of you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe. For he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear that you shall be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all that come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. What Edwards is saying is that 
because Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, he becomes a perfect savior for us. So if you come to him and you wonder, does he, is he able to help me? Is there enough of Jesus? Is there enough power in him, enough majesty and glory to absorb my sin? Can he effectively deal with my sin? The answer is yes, because he's a lion. He's powerful. Right? He contains all of divinity. And so, though our sins are infinite, because we have sinned against God, he has an infinite nature that is able to absorb our sin and provide infinite forgiveness. Because he is a lion. But, as you come to him and you have this picture of his glory, of his holiness, of his greatness... The very next question we're going to ask is, but, but is he willing to accept me? I know he's able because he's a lion. But is he willing? And yes, he is because he's also a lamb. So when you come to him, you get comfort and grace and tenderness and gentleness that are not characteristic of a lion, but they are characteristic of a lamb. And he is both the lion and the lamb for us. So when we go to him, we need to realize that as a lion, he will fight and tear and roar and kill for us. And yet as a lamb, he will welcome us and never turn us away. This is the kind of king we have. This is the kind of leader that welcomes us to himself. And so a great sinner can come knowing that he can deal with our sin and also know that there's enough gentleness to accept me, a poor sinner that I am. So the lion and the lamb, God and man, glorious and humble, powerful and gentle, only Jesus is the king who is both able and willing to save us, to help us, to rule over us, to bless us, to give us meaning and joy that we've been looking for, and to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. That is the kind of king that entered the city on that Sunday. This is the kind of king that is ready to enter our lives and our communities and our church. Now let's move on to the second point. If he is that kind of a king, why does he come to this kind of a city. Jesus comes into the city. Jesus enters the city. We don't go to him, but he comes to us. The people are not coming to him, but he is coming to the people in the city. Now that seems like an obvious thing, right? I mean, of course, triumphal, triumphant entry, he's coming in the city. Of course, people are greeting him, but he is coming in. Why am I making such a point out of such an obvious thing in our text? Well, Jillian has been calling me lately Captain Obvious because I've gotten into a habit of describing out loud what's happening around me. So I would come into the room and I would say, what are you doing, watching TV? Yes, they're all watching TV. No big controversy there, no mystery. What are you doing, making coffee? 
That's why I'm standing right here by the coffee maker pouring water into it because I'm making coffee. Now, I'm saying this obvious thing not only because I have this tendency in my life, but also because unless we keep repeating these things, unless we keep talking about God coming to us in Christ, unless we keep emphasizing that it is God who initiates a relationship with us, that it is He who loved us first before we love Him, that it is He who pursues us before we can even respond to His pursuit, we will simply forget it. We will miss it. And when we preach without this, we will misrepresent what Christianity is about. I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about grace. And you would say, yes, it's an obvious thing in our circles. Yes, it is. And let's keep it obvious. Let's make sure we keep talking about grace. It's not wrong to repeat it over and over again. It's not wrong to marvel at it again. It's not detrimental to your spiritual growth to return to grace over and over again. We can't move past it, really. We can't move past this idea that God decided to save us. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When I was in college, I remember, I think it was a pastor's conference. I went to Moody's. So it was a pastor's conference at Moody. And uh, I was working in food service, and so we were serving pastors, and there's a lot of downtime. And so you end up talking about all sorts of things with your with your friends, and so we got into this whole discussion of what is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is about. Because it says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. So what is this here? Is this, is this the grace? Is this the faith? What, what is this? And so after many hours of conversation without any sort of expertise, you know, as college students, we decided to ask our Greek professor... He wasn't Greek, he taught Greek. And so he was well qualified to answer the question. And he said, he said, that just means all of it. All of it is a gift. It's not specifically about grace or faith. He says, all of this is a gift. God gave all of this to us. Our whole salvation is from God. Basically saying, stop arguing. Focus on something more important than this. <laughs> all of this is God's grace. God is doing something marvelous in our lives. And he does that. He does that. It's His work. And so the reason we can't boast is because we haven't done anything. We can't say that, well, I did something to contribute to God's salvation. I, how could I? I'm only responding to what God is doing. My faith is a response to His grace. Is it meaningful? Yes. Is it important? Absolutely. But it's a response. And even our faith is His work. Because He has opened my heart so I can respond a certain way. He's liberated my affection so I can express them towards Christ. And I couldn't do that before. I am fundamentally sinful. I'm a rebel by nature. And so if God would just simply command that I would come to Him, I wouldn't come. And so He came to me. Jesus entered into the city. We know what's going to happen to Jesus. Right? He's coming. 
pursuing his people. He's coming to declare his kingship to his people. And as he comes, he knows the city he's coming into. He knows it's a city that murders prophets and deposes kings and mocks God. He knows that he will be rejected by his own people. He will be betrayed by his own followers. That his own friends would abandon him. He would be accused and arrested by the leaders, handed over to the oppressors, unjustly tried and sentenced to death. And finally, after he had entered the city in glory, he would be taken out of the city to be put to death outside of it. Jesus knew all of that would happen. He came expecting it. This is why he came. Not just to declare his royal authority over the city, but to die for it. Why did he come to the city that does those things that will inevitably, he knew, would murder him? Why did he do that? He did that because he loved the city and he wanted to save it. That's grace. Not only that God initiated a relationship with us, not only that God makes the first step, but God also makes the ultimate step of saying the only way for this relationship to work is for me to provide the kind of security, the kind of safety, that kind of stability that can sustain all the sin that you bear. And so God sends His Son who dies and rises for us and secures our relationship with God. Now, if, if it was just me, you see, if salvation was up to me, I would never have initiated it. And certainly I would never have accomplished it. But praise God that He doesn't leave it up to me. Praise God that He doesn't spare His Son, but sends Him to die for me. Praise God that He is merciful and loving and gracious. Praise God that God is like that and that He did what He did so we could be reconciled to Him. That is what Christianity is essentially about. Jesus coming to us. There are lots of ways you can explain the Gospel. This is one of them. Jesus coming to us. Another way would be to say salvation belongs to the Lord. A refrain that is all over the Old Testament. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He does it. He initiates it. He accomplishes it. And He blesses us with it. Well, finally, let's look at the city into which Jesus enters. The city welcomed Him initially. The whole city was stirred up. There was a lot of excitement about this prophet from Nazareth, this miracle worker, this potential Messiah. But as every preacher is tempted to point out this very morning, the crowd that shouted Hosanna was the same crowd that cried, crucify him, just days later. Probably wasn't the same exact people. But it's true that the admiration of the city did not last very long. And Jesus was rejected by the same city that welcomed him as the Messiah. 
the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, it is well known that Christ consistently used the expression follower. He never asks for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. No, he calls disciples. This distinction between admirers and disciples, between fans and followers, has always been very important in Christianity. We've always pushed that, that it's not enough just to wave palm branches on the Sunday. Right? It takes much more to live with God. It takes a life of commitment, a life of following Jesus. But this distinction is perhaps even more important today. Wrote a, I, I read a fascinating uh, column by David Brooks, and he, uh, he talked about the shame culture of today. The shame culture of today. He contrasted it with the old guilt culture that it seems to be given, given way to shame culture. Now, neither of them is perfect and they have their own problems and the guilt culture had its own problems when it dominated our culture. But there are significant differences. The old guilt culture provided a basis for our interactions in our deeply and personally held beliefs of right and wrong. So if you believed something was right, you would interact with people accordingly. You would state your opinions based on what you believed inside, based on what you thought was important, whether it was right or was wrong morally. Well, now the current shame culture seems to provide a new rule over our interactions with one another, and it's governed by acceptance and rejection of others and by others. So in other words, in the past, people were prone to hold an opinion that they believed was morally right. Now, many seem to hold an opinion that is approved by others. Now, we see it most prominently on social media. You see people jump into a cause, and it's important to jump on that bandwagon quickly so that people don't say anything negative about you so they don't misinterpret your hesitance as your lack of agreement and then you shame others who disagree with you and so often people's positions are determined by the amount of praise or shame they get from complete strangers that is how our culture operates today we form our views and opinions often based on how well they are received or rejected by others. Now listen to David Brooks. He says, Everybody is perpetually insecure in a moral system based on inclusion and exclusion. There are no permanent standards, just the shifting judgment of the crowd. It is a culture of oversensitivity, overreaction, and frequent moral panics during which everybody feels compelled to go along. If we're going to avoid a constant state of anxiety, people's identities have to be based on standards of justice and virtue that are deeper and more permanent than the shifting fancy of the crowd. In an era of omnipresent social media, it's probably doubly 
important to discover and name your own personal true north, vision of an ultimate good, which is worth defending even at the cost of unpopularity and exclusion. This is insightful, I think. We see people becoming admirers very quickly. And yet, not many people are becoming followers. Your commitment to a cause is fickle. It's based on how popular it is, how many other of your friends are on board with it. And it's easy to leave it, because it's not trending, right? That was yesterday, it was trending yesterday, today is something else. So we can get on board with a, with a great cause on Tuesday, but on Wednesday we move on to something else, because we're not rooted in our commitment based on our values. We're just simply following a crowd. Now all of us here today, unless, let me preface it by saying, unless you are hiding rotten tomatoes in your purse and you're just ready to, waiting for a chance to hurl them at me, you're all admirers of Jesus in some way. You're all here on a Palm Sunday and a snowy day, at least singing songs about Jesus, at least smiling at the children passing by, waving palm branches without realizing the symbolism of such an act. All of us are in some way fans or admirers of Jesus here. But the question is, are we his followers? Are we his disciples? The difference between admirers and followers is the difference between the crowd shouting Hosanna and the two disciples going to get the donkey. You see, they went where the Lord sent them and they did what the Lord told them. That's discipleship. That's following. Yes, they were also part of the crowd, but they had a different bond with Jesus. It was a different relationship. It wasn't based on the popularity of Jesus. It wasn't based on the acclaim of the crowd. Jesus tells them, go and get the donkey. Somebody asks you why you're doing that, tell them the Lord said so. And they went and did it. That's obedience. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus. Alistair Begg said that that is the problem with Western Christianity, is the lack of discipleship, the lack of obedience to Christ. I don't want you to leave here today somewhat satisfied with the fact that you went to church on Palm Sunday or any Sunday. I don't want you to feel that somehow you are okay with God because you gave Him His due by worshiping Him, by listening to a sermon, by singing a couple songs. I would like you to leave here today having encountered the real Jesus and having resolved to follow Him. So my question to you, and I'm going to press you on that, have you encountered this Jesus? The Jesus that the Scriptures describe, the Jesus that the Christians proclaim, that the Holy Spirit tells you about, this Jesus who is the King, who is both glorious and humble, who is both majestic and meek, who is the Lion and the Lamb. Have you encountered this Jesus who is the Savior who comes to us by grace, who went into the city and gave his life 
for sinners who rose from the dead to rule in justice and love. Do you know him? Do you know that Jesus, the true Jesus? Are you going to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done for you by following him, by resolving to be his disciple, by saying, I'm not going to listen to his teachings and agree with certain parts of it because they agree with me. That's an admirer. Admirer just agrees with what agrees with them. But I'm going to take all of it. And I'm going to accept that there are many things in the Gospels that don't make sense to me. Because I'm not God. And I'm a very limited, finite person who is so affected by sin that my mind doesn't work the way it's supposed to. My heart doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So I'm going to listen to Jesus and I'm going to say, Jesus, whatever you tell me I will do, wherever you send me I will go, regardless whether it makes sense to me or it doesn't. That's irrelevant in the relationship of discipleship. I am not going to be on the fringes. I'm not going to stay on the fence and say, well, I like this part of Jesus. I like that he's a lamb. That feels good to me, that I can be accepted. I don't like so much that he's a lion. Or vice versa. Some of us say, oh, I like that he's a lion. Mm -hmm. I like that kind of strong leader. I don't like that he's a lamb who would sacrifice himself for me, for others. But taking it together and saying, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is. I don't get to make up who he is. I can only accept who he is. And then what's the response? If he is that person, if he is that kind of king who comes both in majesty and meekness, who comes by grace, what is the only appropriate response to that? I'll worship and I'll follow. What else can you do? Everything else is going to be inadequate. So will you follow him? Will you love him? Will you follow him with all his people? Will you trust him? Now, if you're not a believer, this is a good introduction to Jesus. Showing you what discipleship is, what Jesus promises to you. Yes, he promises to save you. To save you completely. To rid you of your guilt. To rid you of your meaninglessness and joylessness of your life. He promises all that. But he also promises a life of discipleship and obedience to you. That is the only way to live as a Christian based on what he has done for us. And so as an expression of our discipleship, we come together to the Lord's table and we acknowledge together who Jesus is. And we reaffirm our desire to follow him wherever he might lead us and to do whatever he might tell us. If you are a follower of Christ, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to be part of our church to come to this table if you are part of Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this is not for you. But Jesus is for you right now. And I pray that this transformation into a follower happens today for you.
You may be totally new to this whole thing. And we want people who are totally new to the gospel to be here. We want to explain it. We want to lead you into this great reality of walking with Christ. And it is great. It is a glorious thing. And so if you're totally new to that, see Jesus for who He is and embrace Him fully. Don't waste your time on fandom and admiration. Become a follower. I'm going to pray. And as I finish praying, we will start singing. And I encourage you followers of Christ to come forward and take communion here. You can take it back to your seats. If you are unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you. If you are in the balconies, there are tables set up for you. You can just simply come forward where you are. You don't have to come down if you don't want to. And as we do that, we do that together. We do that thoughtfully. We don't go there just through uh, like, a, like a ritual every Sunday. This is meaningful to us. So prepare your heart, confess your sins, focus on Christ so you can experience His grace anew at His table. Let me pray. Father, we praise You that on this Palm Sunday, our experience with You is not limited to admiration and waving the palm branches or smiling at the children. That's great. Those are good things. We're thankful for those. We're thankful for music that stirs our heart, for words that mean things, for the fellowship of believers. Those are good things for us. And yet, we want you. We're here because of you. We want more of you. We want to be better followers of Jesus closer followers, more passionate lovers of Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that he would change us. I pray especially for those who have believed in you and yet have kept you at a distance. I pray for those that are content right now to be your fans. Lord, would you convince them that the only appropriate response to what Jesus has done is following, is obedience, is discipleship, is resolve to live according to his teachings. Lord, I pray for those of us that are having a difficult time and obedience is hard and there are problems in our lives and we just need encouragement. Would you show us Christ in a way that would be encouraging to us? Some of us need to see him as a lion fighting for us. Others of us need to see him as a lamb that is tender and gentle towards us. Lord, I pray for those who are not believers. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you convince them of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for them? And would you change their hearts and fill them with faith as a gift to them so they can participate in this great salvation accomplished for them by your Son. Holy Spirit, work among us. We know who we are. We know how much we need you. And so we come to you asking for your Spirit to work. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us come to the Lord's table together.